Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we interviewed Scott and Sandy Williams from the Fields Restored Farm in Illinois, USA. Today we're going to approach agroforestry from a bit of a different a different direction. We're going to look at how Scott and Sandy, who are actually landlords of quite a large farm, are starting to work with their tenant farmer in order to implement a variety of agroforestry practices, from silver pasture to intercropping and all the way to windbreak. So it's very interesting to understand the dynamic between the farmer and the landlord in order to put out an, uh, um, ideas of conservation and to meet sustainability objectives whilst maintaining the productivity needs of the, of the farmer. Um, on the side of this, Scott and Sandy have also been planting a perennial woody polyculture in collaboration with the Savannah Institute, which is a very innovative type of system in which a, a huge diversity of crops are put together um, in, in, a, in, a per, in, a, in a polyculture, uh, an integrated fashion in order to produce for their local community. So they're going to talk about both of these things. And um, it was a fascinating interview, and I really hope you're going to enjoy it. Okay. Hello, Scott and Sandra. Thank you very much for coming on today and welcome on the podcast. That's great. Um, well, I thought we could maybe start with having an understanding of how you came about, um, um, how, you, how you ended up owning 500 acres in the first place. Where, where, where does this land come from? I'm curious. Well, we're a sister and brother. Our father owned 210 acres that was originally in his family. And in order to preserve a farm that relatively small for, well, hopefully permanent agricultural production, my sister and I decided we'd start looking for some additional acres nearby. And after a, after a year of looking, we were fortunate enough to find lots more acres than we wanted originally, which was 167, but it was adjacent. And so that was ideal. We, we decided to add that to the family holdings. And this was in the 1990s, mid-1990s. And then some years later, our farm tenant told us about 50 acres he knew about because the farmer renting that land said it was the most productive soil that he had. And if we could purchase that, our farmer would pay us a higher rent per acre for it. And so we did. And thus the total of roughly 425 acres. Okay, so it was an investment decision initially. Yes. Yes, yes okay. an investment decision in, in agricultural property to keep it in agricultural production. Cool. And so what's, I'm curious about what's your relationship with, with the farmer that, that manages the land? That's correct. You know, do you correct. often, like, do you frequently discuss with him and, 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 and you know, does he come to you for, 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 for new management decisions he has to make or how, how does the relationship 
go. We see him several times a week. So we're, we're out there. We're, we're on the land a lot. And so we interact and we, note, we don't sit down for formal meetings, uh, but each year in the negotiation of the rent of the, of the lease renewal, we talk about pros and cons and how the operation is going. And then, you know, in the field during the week, we talk about how things are going. So the relationship is really, it's really excellent. Oh, uh, compared yeah. to other farm owner operator relationships one hears about, ours is ideal. It's, a, it's very cooperative. And, and that's an important goal for us is to keep it that way. And, and just so you know, we've, we've been working with this farm family for more than 20 years now. So we've worked with grandfather and then with son, and now we're working with son and grandson. So as farm operators, that's the, that's the business of them as farmers to, to work land that they can rent. Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, it's, it's very good that you have such a good relationship with him because I can imagine that if you don't, or as you said, other people you may know who don't have that good relationship, it can get quite complicated. Yeah, and uh, it could very well be that a, a traditional farm renter would not be very interested in applying new processes and techniques. And that's not the case for us. So we're very fortunate there. Nice. And so if, if you don't mind me asking, what, what were your activities whilst on the side? I mean, you weren't, you weren't farming directly so... Before you, you started all this new adventure that we're going to talk about soon, um, what were you doing? Well, we were both working professionals. Mm -hmm. So we had daytime jobs. Mm -hmm. I happened to be a, a, when we started this, I was a professional banker in Chicago, Illinois, working, you know, five days a week, at, five days a week at that. And Scott worked for the University of Illinois um, in Chicago also. So we had separate jobs, but we that actually provided us the, the resources that we could afford to purchase land. Mm. Okay. And you, you were never tempted to start farming to, you know, get a, before this, in the 20 years before this, was there, was it ever an option for you guys to say, oh, start farming ourselves? No, not realistically. We're both, yeah. we're both happy gardeners. And uh, I've been growing trees and shrubs and perennials myself for years, but never full-time. Until what happened with, until this new adventure, right? Until, right. so, so exactly. tell me a bit how, how that got started. How did you find inspiration and motivation to, to, to start an agricultural project? Well, the first, the first incentive was to, help protect the family property and allow it to maintain in agricultural production forever. Of course, you can't guarantee that, but one of the things that would help was if the property was larger than the original farm, which would appeal to more farm tenants willing to work the land in partnership with us. So we achieved that, but that was all, always an interest an abiding family interest in conservation and land stewardship and, and hanging on to it so it isn't turned into a shopping center or a housing development. While we were interested in that, 
a young person we knew was in graduate school and in his graduate program, he learned about the Savannah Institute. And he said, you've got to come here to campus and see what they're doing. You would love to implement some of this on your farm. So we did, we visited there on the Champaign-Urbana campus of the University of Illinois and came home and started talking about what we might implement on our farm. Now that decision involved taking some land out of corn soybean rotation and out of the rent the farmer was paying, uh, which was an economic decision we had to face. And then the decision of um, the cost of implementing what we were doing uh, prior to the focus on agroforestry, Dimitri, our focus was on perennial woody polyculture. Mm. Uh, having plants growing that would produce food for human consumption that did not have to be planted every year and would hopefully uh, contribute to the environment and the ecological diversity directly contrasted to corn and soybeans, which are very productive food operations, but ecologically practically one one species deserts. Mm. So we wanted to we wanted to begin to bridge that divide. And that's what we did with the 17 acres we took away from traditional and implemented the uh, the projects that are going now. Okay. You mentioned that initially there was an interest in perennial polycultures. Was that did that happen the is did that happen at the same time as your discovery of Savannah Institute and agroforestry practices, etc.? Or was that happening before? No, they happened simultaneously. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we were interested in something that would that would improve the land overall. And so we didn't want to, we weren't opposed to corn and soybean traditional rotation, but obviously there's a risk to relying on just one or two crops completely and forever. So our minds were open to it. But at that time, the Savannah Institute was promoting perennial woody polyculture. Mm -hmm. And so we jumped in on that in about 2015. Mm. And that, that's still what we have, although it has, the terminology has evolved into agroforestry, kind of encompassing the term agroforestry, encompassing a lot of what we've got with perennial edible plants that produce edible fruits and, and nuts, as well as trees in cropland. Okay, so we'll, ha we'll have to break this down a bit to, to have a clear idea. Um, so maybe you could define us, define for us what is a perennial woody polyculture, and then we'll, we'll we'll describe that a bit, and then we'll head into to the more agroforestry side that seems to have also evolved with it, which is all very interesting. But of course, uh, for us, the perennial woody polyculture is definitely a, a practice we're very interested in, right? It's something that we're about working with polycult with sorry with perennial crops and and integrating them together. So tell me a bit, what does it mean for you? And, and what does it look like in the field? It looks like strips of planted perennial food producing species like in our, in our climate, rhubarb and asparagus and currants and various berries. 
and, um, and nuts. apple trees and hazelnuts and it, those are planted in rows spaced yards and yards apart with alleys of alfalfa growing in between those rows. Mm. So the, the alfalfa can be harvested and the farmer does and baled up and fed to his cattle during the winter. Mm. And our rows of these food crops are in narrow rows separated by, you know, 30 or more feet. Um, and the rows follow the contour of the land. So they're not mm. straight rows. They, they follow the contour of the land so that they hold moisture and, and, and also retain the, the soil productivity that way. And also in a way that the farmer can move his machinery through to harvest the alfalfa that is his crop. So it's kind of sharing what we wanted planted with what a farm operator can still plant and harvest. Wow, that's fascinating. So ju just to visually have a, make sure I understand it correctly, you've got a, a strip of, of a woody polyculture full of food, berries, nuts, and, uh, and fruit, etc., about 30 yards long, and you've got multiple of these separated by a few hundred yards within between alfalfa, something like this, right? That's very, that's very true, Dimitri. If I can okay. find a map and pull it up, I'll show you while we're talking about this. But you've got the idea. That's exactly yeah. how it looks. Okay. And we also have trees in a windbreak kind of mm -hmm. going around this property. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And so it's it's very dense there. I mean, all the all the inside this this polyculture things are quite close together right they're they're planted quite dense in the single rows yes they're as close together as was recommended uh -huh. so a, a current bush might be two feet two a foot apart right a foot or two feet apart uh -huh. going down the row making yeah. the row and the and the berry bushes would be as close together as as they need to be because they're going to branch right yeah, but, mm -hmm. but they're in a in, they're in a row going along the the contour of the land, and then around the outside is uh, more trees that are deciduous trees as well as evergreen trees that produce a windbreak, okay. and some and some really fast growing poplar trees that are both windbreaks and raptor roosts. Okay, so we, nice. we had also in mind as along with the food production. Um, a return to nature, kind of, because mm. we weren't going to put herbicides on, we weren't going to put pesticides on, and sort of to see how the land would regenerate itself with all sorts of of uh, pollinators and and birds and mammals and um, and even and even you know other woodland creatures. We we're just curious to see how quickly nature would return to its 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 natural state. If we stopped all the herbicides and stopped all the and stopped the, the single the single culture crop, mm, that's very interesting. And I mean, you planted this six years ago, right? That's yes. when you, you you so you planted the whole field in one year. Yes. Wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> well, we we had seventeen we acres had, of a polyculture is a lot of work. It it took a couple of days with a with a crew of about ten people. And you know, a tractor and a, a planting device that mm. allowed these 
these small seedlings to be plopped in the ground as the machine rolled along. That's very efficient to do it in a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And so the um, now nowadays, how tall are the trees? Well, the, the those fast growing poplars are thirty five or more feet tall. They you know oh, wow. they grow many feet per year. The the hazelnuts are six feet tall, and that's about where the you know two meters high. That's probably where they'll 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 stay. And the berry bushes they stay about waist high. The apple trees are growing. They're about two meters tall now. And the hickory trees and the uh, chestnut trees are, oh, about three meters high. They, they took a long time to get established. What, what a, a crazy amount of diversity. I mean, I've seen the map before, so I've got a bit of an idea of how it's all laid out. Listeners okay. haven't yet. I'll probably try and share it with them. But, um, I mean, you, you mentioned that there was a big incentive with conservation. Have you started seeing some results? Because I can just imagine this landscape of you being in a place with just soil corn around, not much woody cover, and then you've got a bit of, a, of an oasis that you've created. Is that, is that the, am I seeing it in the wrong way? You're not seeing it wrong, but the oasis is not quite the island unique Uh, that it could be if we were in other areas where there's nothing but corn and soybeans for miles and miles. Corn and soybeans are the predominant crops, but we're fortunate that the area we're in has some woodlands, you know, and some rivers. It, it's the, the whole area itself is fairly diverse. Okay. But the okay. farm that we planted these, this area on, you're right. And I can tell you that the very first year, that it wasn't corn and soybeans, butterflies and insects returned. Right away. Yeah, you know, like, wow. like, right like the magic of a Walt Disney movie. They, uh, mm. It was quick and praying mantis came in, which only feed on other insects. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's been, it's been pretty remarkable. And even a diversity of birds, birds and, and you know, we put up a couple cameras and, And can can capture what comes across, right? So little little ground mammals like you know chipmunks and squirrels and that sort of stuff, and then and then those that feed on them. That's amazing. So I, I wanted to maybe just zoom back a bit and understand what were your key motivations and objectives with this plantation. You, you mentioned conservation, of course. What, what what were the other ones that were your what were your key objectives? Well, in one sense, we planted a lot of different varieties and, and different species in order to see what would grow best on the soil that we had. So part of it was simple. We weren't trying to get food necessarily, but we were interested in agricultural research. Hmm. We, had, we were um, familiar and associated very vaguely with the University of Illinois. And we talked to several students there through their agricultural department and, um, or college, and if they wanted to run an experiment, we'd let them do that. Hmm. Um, and some people did want to do experiments on how many insects do come back or what type of fertilizer works best. And can you use chicken fertilizer or, um, or no fertilizer, you know, on, and, and we, just on the plants that we had there. So, so there was the research aspect of it. And, and we also have a strong educational 
interest. You know, we'd like to share, like we're doing here, talking to you, we'd like to share with people what they can do on land and how they can pr produce an, and grow a variety of, of plants and species that are food producing that, that don't, aren't as risky as a single crop. Just mm. aren't as risky over time as one single crop, like all corn or all soybeans. So in that sense, we were also interested in demonstrating to others what we were doing so they could make some choices on their own properties. Hmm. Now oh, that's really interesting. Our primary motivation was conservation. Okay. And what about production in terms of having a crop that could also generate an income for you? Because, I mean, 17 acres with the type of system that you've described at maturity could be quite valuable. Yes, it could. And we were happily surprised that we started getting raspberries the very first season. Mm. And, and subsequent to that, the currants are more productive every year. The blackberries are astoundingly productive. After the third year, when we could start harvesting asparagus, we're getting... All the asparagus we can handle, so it, it's <laughs> growingly productive, and we are able to sell what we grow, but it isn't financially profitable. Hmm. Uh, this project that we started, making money on it was never the goal. Uh, it was a Earth big investment to do all the plantings. Hmm. And that investment just grew for the first three years, right? With no return because there was nothing much to harvest. Yeah. Since mm -hmm. then, we have harvested, like Scott said, increasing amounts of fruits and nuts. But still, it's, it's limited. We sell those directly to chefs mm -hmm. and cooks and restaurants in, in northern Illinois and in the Chicagoland area. But, but not, not enough of it to, 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 to show any return, any return okay. much on, on what we invested. And so you, we sort of said to ourselves, well, what we invested has to be a sunk cost. That's just mm -hmm. going into the land. That's just yeah. going into the land. We'll take it out of our pockets. We'll put it in these plants because that's our interest is conservation and, and a little bit of research and, uh, you know, and education. So we're not going to be making money at this. Yeah. Interesting. And so even in, let's say, in 10 years time, when the system is, you know, has reached a maturity of full productiveness, um, even at that point, you're not expecting it to, to generate the revenue that is enough to start paying back for that investment. I mean, if you look at the cash flow throughout the, the lifetime of this system, which is going to last many years... No, realistically, realistically, we would never sell enough berries and nuts to recover the initial cost of the investment we made, let alone the cost of the land if you were talking about purchasing that. Mm. Uh, it's, it's viable. We do, we do produce and we do sell. Far more rewarding, though, has been the response from people when they see what we're able to grow and share with them the popularity currently of farm-to-table produce uh, has been very appealing to people. So friends of ours from the city and the suburbs 
are very intrigued and, and fascinated by what we're doing. And, and so we're expanding their knowledge of the natural world and mm -hmm. otherwise what they just see on their grocery store shelves. Um, but we're not, we didn't do it to, to ultimately make a net profit. Yeah, yeah, and we're and educating it makes sense. their children as well, right? So we we encourage families to come, and come with your kids, and pick berries, right? Or pick some pumpkins, or pick some gourds, or pick hazelnuts, and take it home and shuck them yourself, and see what it's like to eat a nut that you picked, then where it, and now you know where it comes from because uh, children don't learn that in school anymore. Um, and they don't know where the food that's that's in the grocery store comes from. So it's uh, it's fun for the parents and it's and it's educational for both the parents and the kids to really be able to be out there and do some do some picking. Mm, that's very interesting. No, and, and these I can I can imagine also that this kind of uh, we've, we've got a similar system here uh, and maybe a bit more simplified um, in, in Greece where we've got a polyculture. On uh, on on ten acres, uh, but in, in one block, in the sense it's it's just a, it, we don't have intercropping with alfalfa or anything, okay. and uh, and visually it looks very different to what you're used to, in on an agricultural terms, um, and and it's quite uh, people they they get uh, uh, quite touched by it because it's it looks very it looks like there's a small forest that's emerging, but it's actually uh, you know producing food. Um, if people are touched and fascinated by producing food and just seeing it and picking mm -hmm. a berry and putting it in their mouths, yeah. th that's, mm -hmm. that's a very different experience and a wonderful experience yeah, for, for, sure. for people today, both adults and children. What are you growing on your 10 acres there in Greece, Dimitri? Um, it's, uh, we're growing um, figs, uh, pomegranates, pistachios, almonds, and uh, prickly pears. So, oh, great. yeah, ca Californian type crops, um, yes. Mediterranean yes, they, crops. Good for you. Those wouldn't work where we are. Yeah, I'm sure it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. Um, but we've tried to make it, in, well, what we're, what we're aiming to see at our place is how much diversity can we integrate? Um, you know, how can, so we've got, for example, a line of fig trees and then a line of pomegranates and a line of fig trees. So, a bit more simplified but we're trying to see how diverse can we go whilst being profitable and it, we started four take... years ago so it's a bit young the project okay. Okay. how long does mm -hmm. it take a fig tree before you'll actually reap some figs uh so the first figs will arrive at the second or third year okay. maybe even the can yeah second year can start if it has good growth uh but the first commercial crop uh significant commercial crop crop for a fast growing tree should should be around four or five years in the sense, it, 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 it quickly it starts producing. Pistachios would take, for the first like solid commercial crop, can take seven, eight, nine years. Okay. Figs would be more, more around four, five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's, a, it's, a, well, it's an issue in your case if you jumbled everything together and planted everything in the same row, harvesting would become very inefficient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, you can stack sure. the diversity in, but it would be hard to get at stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and and is that 
I mean, if you were to think about your system and a, and a farmer came to see you and they were like, wow, this is just fantastic. This looks amazing. But I, I want to make, make a bit of money with this. Would you, how would you change your system? How would you adapt it to that farmer? Would you, would you simplify I would things? That he, I would suggest that he integrate trees or perennial crops into rows within his existing fields mm -hmm. and uh, harvested traditionally around those and, and learned about variety of crops in between uh, through trial and error or maybe seeing what we're doing or what appealed to him personally. You know, if he wants to grow raspberries, he should plant raspberries. It's, uh... We can help now with what we've got to help people understand what grows. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, we had red raspberries and yellow raspberries and black raspberries, and they grew the first two or three years, but then they, but then they all died back. They just mm. all died back, and we don't have those anymore to mm. a great extent. Um, and that's just part of our climate, part of the soil where we are. So, you know, we could, we could easily tell a farmer, take these, these species, grow mm -hmm. this, but grow, grow that one thing then yeah. more abundantly. And, mm -hmm. and you will have, you could make more off of your land. You know, we so planted, remember, mm -hmm. we planted our rows sort of 40 or 50 feet apart mm -hmm. so that a farm operator could also plant his rows of alfalfa and go through there with a machine mm -hmm. and harvest that, right? Mm -hmm. Mow it down and bale it up. Well, if we weren't with a farm operator and it was someone else and they wanted to plant rows of, let's say, blackberries, they could plant them much closer together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could get more of the, of the, of the fruit producing plants on this land than the way we've planted it. Right. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And, and then they'd make more money. Then they could make money sooner and, and more money. And you're, you're harvesting everything by hand. Yes, that's right. There are things like blackberries and black raspberries and, and June berries they can't be harvested any other way. Mm. And you know, it's, it's plucking them one at a time. And uh, currants, it's, it's, they may yeah. have ways of harvesting currants in Europe. Mm. Yeah, I was on a farm recently where we, were, we had these crops as well. And it was, uh, it was all by hand. Took a, took a while. And it, it's good that it, 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 it takes a good price on the market, though. You sell them well, but it's... Uh, it, it, yeah, it and another <laughs> option is to have is to have the public come in and pick their own berries. Mm. Um, we haven't we haven't looked into that yet. We're not particularly interested in having people traipse around, but I can see that they would want to. Mm -hmm. There would be you could open your property up to people coming in and picking their own berries. And nuts, mm. if people like chestnuts or they like hazelnuts, you know, you could have times of the year when, when they're ripe and let the public come in and pick what they want in bags or sacks and, and sell it by the, by pounds, right. Or by bushel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, we interviewed a farmer on the podcast that was doing this, um, um, from Red Fern farm and they're doing oh, yes. you pick. Mm -hmm. We have visited their farm. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Uh -huh. Yeah. Nice. They, they, they did a great job discovering that people would come in and pick their chestnuts and they didn't have to 
pick them and bag them and try to sell them. That was a great transformation for them. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's, it's like a dream, really. You, get, you don't have to worry about harvesting. Somebody comes to do it for you and pays you for it as well. It's, uh, it's quite the ideal situation. That's right. As, uh, and they, as Tom they, was explaining had, to us. They had mature chestnut trees, which we don't have yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice. And this could be an opportunity for you in the future as well. That's and correct. Start. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very nice. And so I'm, I'm curious, how, how did you fund this project? Did you fund it yourself? Or did you get a, a fund from, from an external fund to do so? We paid for it ourselves. Okay, nice. Fortunately, and we could. Mm -hmm. And we, want, we were that interested in doing something that would last on the farm beyond our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. uh, the perennial aspect helps assure that. Planting trees, which will outlive us, helps assure that. Um, but we decided we would make this investment. We just made that commitment. Okay, very nice. And how did you learn all the skills? Because it's, it's not easy to... You had jobs on the side. I understood you, you'd been doing some planting and some, uh, and some carrying of trees and vegetables, etc., some gardening. But how, how did you then... You know, start such a because it is quite a big scale project. It's not small. Um, so how how did that? Uh, how did you learn the tricks of the trade and everything? Well, we learned the planning plan, planting plan, and got the planting done through resources of the Savannah Institute. Okay. But in terms of managing and pruning and mulching, and when to harvest, we've we're continuing to learn that. As time goes by, we're learning more and more. Uh, the, those things that survived, they're thriving. They're doing very well. And so as we refill areas that weren't as successful, we're going to work with the things that did very well mm. and plant more of those. It's, but we, we, we consider ourselves very, very young into this. Yeah. And it, it's all lots of fun and fascinating and, and, and interesting. And it has, it has required the past two seasons um, more and more of our personal time. And at this point now, we're both retired from our mm -hmm. day jobs. So during the harvesting season, we have had the time personally to, to be there, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're picking raspberries or blackberries, you're picking every other day. Mm -hmm. right to get just the ripe ones at the right time so mm -hmm. that's that's a, a lot of uh time and energy which um which we're doing more and more of as as the years go by um but we won't be able to do it forever either <laughs> so you know that's our next that's our next uh transition okay very nice so it was it wasn't it doesn't seem so overwhelming for you you kind of just went into it and learned everything you had to learn and, and cracked on with it, right? That's correct. And it's, mm. it's, it's, it is beginning to reach the point where the labor of harvest is overwhelming to us. Okay. And so we're, we're, we're exploring other sources for that. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are you exploring? I'm curious. Well, there's a, there's a religious group, a, a religion um, called the Mennonites, Mm -hmm. And the Mennonites have pockets of populations throughout the United States. And they've, they've started to build a community, uh, 
near and around our farm. And we began talking to them last season about coming in and doing the, the hand harvest themselves, which of course we have to figure out how to pay them for their labor uh, or, or, pay them or, in goods. or charge them for the crop that they take. Mm -hmm. And since we haven't been doing that ourselves before, we have to figure that out this winter. Mm. So, so it could turn into a U-Pick system. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, it, it would, it would be you pick, Dimitri. They would pick, yeah. and then they could resell them uh, for whatever price they could get. Uh -huh, uh -huh, or they okay. could make product out of them, right? If they were picking berries, they could make uh -huh. jam or jellies or whatever they wanted, or freeze and and sell fresh or frozen, right? As a as a as an operation. Yeah, mm -hmm, for As sure. A food producing operation. We haven't answered that question yet, but we're asking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're looking okay. into it. Okay, very nice. And um, I, I was curious about how you managed to mechanize everything, and in the sense, uh, I'm talking about the management now. Do you guys have a a tractor to 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 keep to weed or to till, or how, how do you how do you manage the land? We bought a small tractor that we use mostly to, to mow the areas that aren't in alfalfa and just, you know, the, the, the paths and all along and the borders. So mowing takes a good bit of time mm -hmm. and we don't harvest anything mechanically. So mm -hmm. that's all by hand. And we have spread mulch with the tractor and also mm -hmm. by hand you know, mm -hmm. with it along the road, mulching along in there so that it keeps the weeds down and, mm -hmm. it, and it, you know, adds to the root, root growth of the plants that we care about. Mm -hmm. We okay. purchased a used mulch spreader with another farmer uh, that helps that process um, and we share it. But those are the two pieces of equipment, major pieces of equipment that we have. Yeah, okay. And, and you get the mulch, I guess it's wood chips that you buy in. That's right. Well, okay. I think you'll like this part of the story. <laughs> our, our farmer, our, our tenant farmer also had a beef feedlot, concentrated beef feeding from the, you know, from the calf stage just to put weight on and then sell to the, to the processing market. Well, he bedded those cows on wood chips hmm. and he got the wood chips from a, a major department store chain across the U.S. called Menards. And the wood chips are the wooden pallets that they move material around on, that a forklift picks up those, those grids of wood. We call them pallets. Mm -hmm. And when those are wearing out, they became a nuisance to Menards and Menards would grind them up and had, no, had nothing to do with those chips. So this farmer said, well, I could take some of those chips. And they said to him, if you'll take all of those chips, we'll deliver them to you for free <laughs> just, to get, just to get rid of the nuisance. Okay. Mm. So he got the free wood chips. He put them in the barns underneath the cows and this is a pretty intensive operation with 
you know, lots of cows just standing together, gaining weight all day long. Yeah, herds of cows eating and, and getting fatter every day. But while they're eating, they're producing manure. And the manure is falling into the wood chips. So when it's time to clean out that barn and bring in some more cows, he had this, I call it magic manure mulch mm. that had developed with the with the, the fertilizer ingredients in it and the natural plant material from the wood already ground up and beautiful and handleable. And so we bought from him several truckloads of this material and we still have piles of that on the farm to to spread as mulch when we can. Okay. And without doing it scientifically, there's absolutely no question the crops that get the benefit of this magic manure mulch are measurably more productive than those that don't. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. it was natural fertilizer. Right. Yeah. There's a great opportunity to recycle something that was a nuisance and a waste product in another operation um, and works perfectly for us. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting. Okay, nice. So you're spreading the you're spreading the the, the mulch with the with the mulcher. You're pruning with uh, by hand, harvesting by hand, and you're mowing in between mowing the rows with the, the tractor. Right. Mm, yes, that's okay. right. Very yep. nice. Very nice. And so I'm I'm curious as to um, you know some of the as as let's say as new new farmers. Um, you know, you started six years ago actively in this. What, what were some of the top lessons that you learned with these kind of polyculture systems? Um, you know, what would you have done differently? You know, what would you have changed in the design and the management? What did you learn that you could tell others that want to implement similar systems? The design was, was, was terrific. We spent a lot of time with the Savannah Institute developing the design and what we wanted to plant and where And that has worked out very, very well. Uh, it, was, it was surprising to us to learn that some of those things did not thrive. And mm. so while we're busier and busier with the productive plants, some of the things that we thought would do well have not. And we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't planted it and tried it. So I wouldn't call that a flaw, but I'd call it a lesson learned. Hmm. The, fir the first thing I would do different if I was starting this over, the first year we didn't have corn and soybeans, we planted these alleys and these rows of crops. We didn't do anything to kill off the weeds that were there hmm. or prevent the weeds from coming in. And so those invasive weeds have been a problem ever since. Had we taken the time to destroy all of that we would have started with a cleaner uh cleaner soil base yeah mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. instead we have to we still mow a lot to keep the weeds and the grasses down mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. another lesson dimitri we planted hardy apple roots apple rootstock intending to graft more desirable varieties of apples onto it um, when the rootstock was developed. And the rootstock did well, but our grafting failed almost 100%. Hmm. So gradually I've been replacing those failures with bare rootstock already grafted apple trees 
And I would strongly advise, unless you're an expert grafter, and we didn't do it ourselves, we had an expert grafter doing it with us, uh, I wouldn't mess with that. I would go with the more expensive, already grafted apple trees. Uh, that 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 was a lesson learned. Yes, that's right. And, uh, mm. and and some of the some of the trees that we tried, pawpaws and persimmons, did not prosper for us. So we'll do more apples. But we tried. You know, we tried a lot to see what would work. And I think anybody would 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 have to do some of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and anybody who would do this, who wanted to plant fruit trees, you have to be patient. We don't have any apple trees bearing fruit yet, right? And we're mm-hmm. in year six. Okay. We don't have chestnuts bearing nuts yet, and we're in year six. So you have to pick varieties that that can yield you what you need, kind of in a timeline that's reasonable for you. You have to think about that. You know, yeah, 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 for sure. A lot time, more time to mature and to produce. And the variety selection is very important. If you don't have a farm around that can demonstrate or that has gone through this process, this difficult process of finding out what works, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an it's a it's a huge extra research cost that's uh, that you take on your on your shoulders. So. Uh, but it's also very helpful for the community around, as you mentioned. Now there's information about what works, what doesn't. And uh, have you you managed to work out why they they don't work, the persimmons? And um, you mentioned the pow-pows. The only thing we can guess, you know, rhubarb grows all over the Midwest. I don't think it was originally native, but every old farm that has rhubarb, it's got rhubarb forever. It It just keeps on thriving. And our rhubarb didn't. It never prospered. It, it never grew well. We think probably the soil there is just too dense, too, too, too heavy mm. for it. Mm. So we're going to try rhubarb again this spring, but in a different location. Because once it's established, that's one of those perennial crops. It should last forever. Mm. It seems- that should be a soil type differential, right? It seems that our raspberries failed because they lost in competition to the weeds we didn't get rid of before we planted, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. But the the blackberries didn't have that problem at all. They're just mm. they're fuller and thicker and more abundant every year. So we're going to plant some more blackberries. Yeah, mm-hmm. and adapt along the way. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we're also going to change. We're going to try something we haven't tried before which is ornamental dogwood shrubs, the twigs of which are mm. colored bright red or bright yellow or orange. And these can be harvested and sold to garden centers and, you know, decorative. You know, the, the twigs of those bushes grow up kind of like hands, right? Like fingers. And you can just cut them off as they're, and you, and you cut them off into, into bunches. And you can yeah, sell that mm-hmm. to landscapers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very interesting. Any other big mistakes, things you would do differently, uh, things you'd like to share? I'm still curious to hear. Well, I will just say that it, it helped us, it, it did help us a lot to have the Savannah Institute mm-hmm. or, or an organization nearby that had 
not only some information themselves, but they were also a collective of other farmers, Mm -hmm. right, that we could meet with or we could talk to or we could share with, you know, what we were doing, like Red Fern Farm and others. We would meet those people at gatherings and in a a way also to be associated with with it, with an agricultural university, because it helps it, it helps us to learn from those who come, even when they're doing different types of experiments, right, on different species or, for instance, we planted 19 varieties of service berries, also called June berries, and so one of the professors at the University of Illinois wanted to see use that as one of her experiments to see, you know, over time which ones grow the best and which ones don't, and and you can walk those rows and you can see now they're tall enough. You can see which ones are bearing the most fruit and which varieties are not out of the 19. So she's getting, she can have uh, year after year after year um, longitudinal research there mm-hmm. based, on, based on the soil types that we have. So, so that was a good thing. It was a, it's been a good thing to be associated with an, an agricultural college. Mm. The the support of the Savannah Institute seems vital, huh? and also going about the design and um, and setting up this project from the start. That's absolutely true. Now, mm. going forward, the Savannah Institute's focus has been more in agroforestry, mm-hmm. incorporating trees into existing agricultural practices. Mm-hmm. We are working with them on some research and demonstration projects planting trees in islands within the pasture or along the edges of the pasture. And there we're very actively cooperating as partners where they're, they're, they've planted these trees and are managing the, the, the process of watching this and comparing these various types and, and systems and you know different types of protective tree tubes to see which ones are, are most effective and whether different sizes of islands, whether trees planted as, as you know, just sticks that should form their own roots or already rooted seedlings is more productive. Mm-hmm. You would guess that the rooted ones are, and they are. The non rooted <laughs> ones are cheaper, but not as many of them make it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had a significant drought here this summer after many of these trees had been planted. And so they had a really rough year to get started. Um, you can't control the weather when it, you know, when, when, it, when we're all done here, hopefully we will have contributed to a, a more weather, weather resistant system and even on a micro scale to a more moderate system of weather uh, with, with, with trees and different things. Uh, but the the actual agroforestry projects they're very new they just started in 19 2019 mm, yeah so we're still assessing and measuring but but with the savannah institute we've hosted visit days for the public and interested neighbors and farmers to come and walk through and learn about what we're doing here uh but we don't have the answers yet. We really don't have the answers to anything. It's still very much a learning curve for us. And it's it's been fun to have the chance to learn it. But I will say, add to that, that other local farmers have come 
and have toured our property and have then gone home and decided to do something different with their properties. Mm. So whether it's adding a different type of crop, like a perennial crop or agroforestry or building silvo pastures, you know, trees added to pasture areas or, or planting along a stream bed, because we've also done that, you know, planting along a stream bed to hold the soil and prevent soil erosion. Um, and so these farmers come and see that. And then they, 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 we know of at least two of them who came just this past summer and are now considering doing some protective, um, conservative agri- agroforestry projects on their own properties. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really nice to be able to, to have that influence and to be able to yeah. showcase. And, and that's part of what your, your objectives at the start, as you, meant, as you had mentioned. That's exactly right. I'm curious about the agroforestry because we, we, we talked a lot about your, your older system, your polyculture. And now, from what I understand, you've got some younger systems. So could you, could you exp- when, you, when you mentioned agroforestry around the pasture, could you be a bit more uh, or explain to us a bit more precisely, you know, what does that, what does that mean? What does it what does it look like? It's on the it's it there are trees planted around the perimeter of one major pasture. How it's big is pasture, the paddock? It's been a pasture for a long time. So trees all along the border, just outside the fence. Okay. Yeah. In, planted in tubes. So there's a row as far as you can see of of tubes with the green leaves just beginning to peek out of the top. And then islands within the pasture where small groups of trees to larger groups of trees have been planted and fenced in to mm-hmm. keep the keep the cows out of them and the weeds in there have been killed and the the trees each have a mat around them a weed mat to help retain moisture and help the young seedling get started so right now those look like pens of of empty earth with tubes sticking out of them uh, <laughs> at various places around in the middle of the pasture. Yeah. But when the trees have, have grown and the fence can be removed, these will provide shade for the cattle. And, and we know that cows prefer that if they can mm-hmm. get some shade. Where there are existing trees in the pasture, that's where you see the cows during the summertime resting in the shade of those trees. Mm-hmm. So instead of just having a big old empty grassland of pasture, we will eventually have a beautiful grassland of pasture with islands of different kinds of trees within it, which will be scenic to look at and beneficial to the cows. And we'll be having varieties of trees that are always good. Trees are always good. I would say to anybody who's interested, plant trees. I'm curious, what trees then? For sure, but w- what trees have you decided to, to plant there um, in this well, pasture? This Is it event- again fruit and, and nut trees, or have you opted for? No, it's it's it's, it's native trees, a okay. variety of native trees planted in a in a different mosaic to see whether they do better as single species within an island or a diverse group of species within an island. And which of those species do best Mm. planted out in the middle of a pasture? They're deciduous hardwood, aren't they? Deciduous hardwood trees, yes. Oak, Mm. maple, the trees that we have here, locust. Willow. uh, Different trees. 
Very interesting. And and that's that's in collaboration with the farmer that's got the cows, the the tenant. Well, yes, the, yes, the, the farmer, farmer had that's got the cows. Yes, the yeah. farmer had to give up some pasture uh, in order to plant these islands, and that that was something we had to work out because when you look on a map, it looks like oh my gosh, all those islands, there isn't any grass left for the cows to eat. And it's very important for him to have pasture for the cows to eat. Mm-hmm. But actually, in measurement, it, it wasn't as significant an amount of acreage as it looks like. And, you know, we had to reduce our pasture rent for those islands that his cows couldn't graze any longer. And we're, we're, we're looking for nearby pasture uh, to make available to him so that he hasn't lost what he had before. That for every for every acre of pasture that he can't have, he loses a cow or two that he can have, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that's his interest. So we couldn't do that as extensively as we might have wanted, but we did it nonetheless in a practical, realistic situation. And uh, we'll see how that works. I think we took like a 30-acre pasture. Okay. And with all the tree plantings that were fenced, that added up to about five acres. Hmm. So out of out of a 30-acre pasture, five acres came out for us to plant trees and to start this. So he had to, and his, I think he said with his current beef, he has a cow-calf operation that taking out five acres means five cows have to go. Mm-hmm. So the grass can support five fewer cows. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's his that's his cost to this, and and he makes that up because he doesn't pay for the five acres in mm-hmm. rent to us, right? So it's just that's just how the economics and the and the uh, production goes with that. How does uh, I'm curious about how does he feel about all of this tree planting, and uh, well, he, we have- he or she I don't know who. Uh, uh, who makes the decisions there? Uh, but we have you know, three generations, as we mentioned. Yeah, and the youngest member seems rather agreeable to all of this, okay. almost, almost intrigued. The middle generation uh, was not too keen on losing any pasture at all, mm-hmm. so we 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 modified our plan, made it more palatable for him, and. Uh, I think we're in. A, I think we're in good shape there, but it remains to be seen when those trees are large enough that the cows can start getting shade from them, you know, which he'll like. We'll all like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, this is part of the planning, part yeah. of the. And other things we accommodate them on as well, and that's the give and take. For instance, he wanted to take another piece of property and and fence it in, and it just it was just open property, and he wanted to create a a field, right, for a pasture field. And we said, well, that's okay then. You know, that was sort of the give and take. Mm-hmm. We have other pasture land, and if they want to, you know, put a little put a little pathway through there for their, for their vehicles, we said, okay, you can put a pathway through there. So there's different things that you give and take on related, related right, but not specifically on that one pasture where we're, where we're doing the, the silvo tree planting. Okay. Very nice. And so are there any other systems that you're hiding from me? Agroforestry plantations um, that uh, that you'd like to share with us? Because we talked about the, 
the polyculture, we talked about the, the silver pasture plantings. What about the row crops? Have you, have you managed to convince your, your tenant to? No, we haven't done that. We have not done yet that. that that's, that's a long-term prospect. Um, this, our farm tenant would like to have more acres to plant and psychologically taking any of it away from him to, to try out rows of trees within the field uh, is not something we're all prepared to address just yet. If we can locate some other acres for him to rent and plant on, then we could move ahead with planting some rows of trees within the existing fields. But mm -hmm. we've held off on that uh, just because we, we want to maintain a terrific relationship yeah, with him. And that's the priority. Mm. That, that's yeah. right. That is definitely the priority. Because mm. we could move a lot faster on in you know planting every sort of agroforestry project conceivable <laughs> to man. But the, the practical issue is uh, the farmer still has to make a living off of what is there. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to get along, all of us. Mm -hmm. So the, the human factor is important, too. Mm, yes, it, it, it seems very important. We haven't mentioned it much, Dimitri, but we also yeah. did plant, uh, as Sandy, Sandy referenced, a riparian buffer mm. uh, zone, which is some of the acres that came out of the pasture so we could protect a little creek that flows through there and demonstrate it to people. When those... When those plants have all established themselves, well, then the cows can be allowed back in. But when mm. these trees are just seedlings or knee high, uh, you know, the cows would trample them and chew them down to the ground. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's another long term. That's, we've done that. That's there. Right now, I mow that to keep the weeds down between the rows of trees. But in time, that'll be established with various native trees and shrubs and and we're really just in year one of that. So mm. see, over time, we've we've done different things um, to, with the, with this long term goal of conservation. How do you conserve the soil and not have runoff down the creek? You know, well, yeah. let's do a riparian buffer. Okay, let's 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 plant it wisely. Let's plant it smartly, and let's look at at how muddy the creek is with with field runoff. You know, two years ago versus next year and the years going forward. Um, so everything works to the, hopefully to the advantage of conservation and, and maintaining and managing a really good overall ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I'm sure that's also something that as, as, it, as it visually expresses itself, your tenant farmer will also surely develop a, or could develop a sensitivity to seeing it work and being like, oh, wow, look, the, we're not losing so much soil here. Well, and also, and the, and the grass that does grow for the cattle is better quality grass, see, because mm -hmm. those trees sink carbon right down into the soil all the time. So, mm -hmm. and that spreads, right? So that the ultimate grass that's coming up around the trees and the whole pasture is improves the soil quality and, and therefore improves the grass that the cattle can feed off of. Um, so that benefits him. The other thing that, that has been helpful for our, overall relationship with the farmer is these, when we've had visit visitor days, open to the public visitor days, and he sees other people come and he sees, you know, those, the 
dad and son see other farmers come look at what's happening here. And mm. I think over time that sort of changed their minds a little bit. Mm. You know, they could have thought we were nuts in the beginning, you know, six years ago. And <laughs> well, does Scott and Sandy Williams want to go do this? I guess, you know, they're the owners. I guess we got to let them do it. And we really don't, you know, and they, there could be lots of comments and, and, and opinions in the community. But I think over time, as, as our farmers see visitors come and do some of these experiments and, and they see us out there all the time harvesting, right? And then they see the public come visit and they, and they really see the public come visit, right? And walk these places and walk these roads. And they realize that there is, there is a, a community interest in, in doing things a little bit differently. And I think that's helped. They're becoming, um, people ask them questions now, you know, in the local, in, the, in town, what's going on? And they, and they can, our farm operators can explain what's going on. Hmm. And there's a whole social adventure happening here as well. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of true. And I would hmm. stress again, we were very, very lucky because our farm family was never opposed to this. They might not have been as excited about it as we were, mm. but there was never opposition. And we started with them from the very beginning, selecting which 17 acres to take out of their production and establish the perennial woody polyculture area on. That was in advice, you know, in cooperation with, with them. Uh, I think they have been intrigued, as we have, to see how it is all working out. But from the beginning, it, it's been a grand experiment. And we, I would stress over and over, we're very fortunate. We were never, they were never op opposing any of this. It was always cooperative from the very beginning. And I think as Sandy says, we've all enjoyed seeing the response from other people. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. And the, the inspiration that it's creating as well. And I'm curious what feedback other farmers that are coming to visit you are, are giving. Well, all we, all we know is that two of the farmers who visited on the public days, they're, they're doing something actively now with the Savannah Institute to, to do some agroforestry on their properties. So mm. we don't know what exactly they're going to do. And you, know, you don't just drive in and say, hey, what are you doing here? Um, but that's as positive a feedback as there could possibly be. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's terrific. Indeed. Mm. And do you know which kind of systems they're implementing? No, we don't know. Mm. We, we only recently learned that the two of them are doing projects on their own property now. So. Mm. Okay. And I'm curious, what about the... Sorry, uh, Sandy, I cut you there. No, you didn't cut us off. We cut you off. Uh, we're also adding in this perennial woody polyculture area a couple of plots of prairie pollinator grassland habitat mm. where uh, in in one case in one place where it's, it's pretty rocky and and the things we had planted there weren't doing so well we're going to let the native vegetation take that over and that's that's going to get planted in the spring but that isn't exactly agroforestry, but it's con it's contributing again to the ecological diversity there. 
and we may plant within that grassland a few trees here and there to establish a, a, a savanna, hmm. which is what the Savannah Institute is named after. <laughs> a savanna is basically a prairie with some trees. Mm-hmm. So we'll be doing that as well. But no, Dimitri, we're not keeping any secrets from you. <laughs> There's nothing we committed intentionally. I'm just too nosy. <laughs> no, that's okay. We're all here to learn together. Yeah. yeah. It, it, this has been fun for us to implement and learn from, mostly because we're learning. Uh, we, we don't have the answers. Like I said, we're engaged in the questioning process. But we're actually trying it, you know, we're planting things and getting our fingers dirty and and learning. But I mean, if I can allow myself to say you're you're learning on quite a big scale. I mean, it's not small to plant 17 acre and surely uh, probably thousands or tens of thousands of different trees and shrubs and etc. So it's really admirable to be, you know, wanting to 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 learn and get your your hands dirty on on, on such a scale and so that so many people can learn from this. And I really admire that. It's quite possible that had we known in advance how large a scale it was, (laughs) we might have done a little less initially. (laughs) And it's a darn good thing that we're both retired now from our other jobs because if we weren't, nothing would be getting picked. Hmm. So yeah, that that's also true. Come out and pick sometime, Dimitri. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, listen, if I am ever in the United States and I'm in the United States, and I really would like to go soon because we're interviewing so many farmers there. Um, actually, more than half of our listener base comes from the United States. Okay, or, well, ju- or plan, just about plan half. A trip. Plan, plan a trip. Yeah. Plan a visit. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. And I, I wanted to, to to ask you one last question. Um, what about other landowners? I mean, you're in a unique position as landowners that have this conservation objective in mind and are ready to make a compromise on the income that you're generating in order for, you know, in, on the amount of rent that you're, you're taking off of the land in order to, to satisfy conservation objectives. So you've, you've developed an amazing sensitivity here and, and, and an amazing objective. But what about other landowners maybe that you know of, that are your friends? What, what do they think of your work? Do they... Do they are they inspired by it, or do they just try to ignore it and not look too much? Oh, they don't ignore it, Dimitri. I, I would say, without exaggerating, that they are inspired by it. Hmm. Maybe not to the point of doing it themselves, but this sort of this sort of mindset is growing like crazy. I, I imagine worldwide, but certainly in this country, and everybody's intrigued by anything that has echo in front of it or green in front of it, you know, or climate mediation in front of it. And mm-hmm. so their, their eyes are open, but they don't understand what any of it means. Mm. So when they can come and see what we've got or talk to us about what we're doing, well, they think we're, they think we're grand and noble yeah. pioneers. Yeah, they think we're pioneers <laughs> in environmental safety. They, they, they think it's exciting. Resuscitation and all that stuff. Wow. Well, you, you are kind of pioneers. I mean, you, you may not think of yourselves as that, but not many people are doing what you're doing in, in your well, region. Well, 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 that's true. We're one of, yeah, that's true. I don't know <laughs> any other farm in our state that's doing it. Oh, well, that is maybe the definition of a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. that's, that's amazing. That's great to hear. And um, 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's fascinating for our listeners to to hear this um, this story. And as as we, as we said at the beginning, you know, you you mentioned, you know, we're, we're not farmers, we're landowners that are engaging in different projects, but this is really this is part of of the of the the agricultural system. Everywhere we have landowners and farmers, young farmers, old farmers. There's, there's a big system there, agricultural system, and and and. And being able to inspire other landowners to lead the way like you have is is going to be part of this solution to create uh, an agriculture that can also be uh, regenerative or conservational uh, towards, uh, you know, can, that can conserve our, our ecosystems and, 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 and last in time. So it's, That's what um, they mean by sustainable, Dimitri. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And you're mm-hmm. right. It is a system-wide and a community-wide system. Very, very, very true. That's, mm. that's what we believe, right? Mm-hmm. I should tell a story about the restaurant. Oh, yeah. Um, we had extra. This is this was a we have been selling our produce to a couple of chefs and we had so much produce this year that our chef was overwhelmed, overwhelmed right? He couldn't even freeze all the blackberries. So so there's a local little restaurant in our town in Illinois. And this lady started a, a, a shop. It just, it makes desserts and sells them with drinks, meaning a dessert might be a chocolate mousse cake, and she'd sell that with a, with a spiked coffee, right? So coffee and Bailey's Irish cream or coffee and scotch, or she'd make a, a key lime pie and sell that with margaritas. So that's mm. the theme for her little restaurant. Although she also has it's two women who own it. They also have sandwiches and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just walked in there one day because we had extra June berries. And I said, you know, would you, are you interested? Would you be interested in some direct from the farm? Well, she was, and she took those June berries. And so over time, she has, she has taken an awful lot of blackberries. She's taken hazelnuts. She's taken pumpkins, pumpkins and she's made pumpkin pie, pumpkin soups, she took the June berries and she made them into some sort of like cobbler and she sold that in town at a at an open house, you know, community fair and people were telling her they couldn't believe how well how good they tasted and they couldn't come from a farm because there's no farms around here. She said, "No, they do come from a farm. I know the farm owner." So she's getting marketing positive and feedback. positive feedback out of the fact that she's making her desserts with our produce. So she's made pumpkin cream pie and pumpkin soup, and she's made she's taken our hazelnuts and infused it into her vodka. And she told me the other <laughs> wow. day that that was extremely popular. Wow! Right? So now she can yeah. serve hazelnut infused vodka in her in her restaurant bar area, along with any sort of dessert that she makes. So it's 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 been, catching on, and it's fascinated me because she took. All the pumpkins we could we could send her, and we we bought baking pumpkins, right? And so, or that's what we grew, baking pumpkins. And she said to me one day, she said, "Well, I have these two chefs; they'll do whatever we want with pumpkins. They just love them. And you know, to cook with from a raw pumpkin is not an easy task. That's a lot of a lot of chef work. A lot of cooking and baking work goes into that. But it's been so successful for her from a from a marketing standpoint, right? From just a community footprint standpoint for her, that she's she's happily taken, she's taken frozen berries now. 
Mm. Amazing. That's such an inspiring story. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's you nice. can do the same thing with your pomegranates. Yeah, we, well, they're going to start. We didn't plant any berries, etc. We've got our first prickly pears to sell, but the problem is that they're extremely prickly. So they're not, they're not like a, <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a kind of a bittersweet uh, thing to offer to, to somebody unless you process it yourself. But we're trying out different products now and, and we'll be going also to, we're, we're trying to find out where we can sell some of our products. A lot of them go to the community we have back in, in France. Um, okay. And um, because we've got, we, we lived there for many years. So we've got a lot of friends and friends of friends, etc. But um, yeah, that's uh, good for you. Yeah, it's good. We're in a similar process. Yes, we um, are. We're, we're growing and learning. That's exactly right. Maybe that should be our motto. Growing and learning. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, Scott and Sandy, thank you so much for coming on and for uh, talking about your fascinating experience. Um, and thank uh, you. yeah, really, really, really nice to hear all of this, all of your story. Thank you for having us, Dimitri. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't hesitate to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you wish to support the podcast, you can always do so on our website in the support us tab. And see you next time. Thank you so much.